you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Hebrews is in uh, the New Testament. And uh, if you've been here over the past few weeks, uh, you know that we are in the middle of a sermon series called By Faith. And uh, the name of our church, of course, is Faith Lutheran. And we thought we'd spend some intentional time really unpacking this idea of what it means to uh, live, to walk uh, by faith. Because faith is one of those interesting words that, uh, on the one hand, seems a little bit uh, mysterious, uh, even uh, mystical. What is faith exactly? And we're sometimes uh, almost reluctant to use that word because it just seems too, too holy or too spiritual for us, but, but other times we will use this word faith uh, casually, uh, almost even flippantly, uh, and we use the word uh, much like a, syn- a synonym uh, with hope, and we, we put it on par, uh, I have faith in something or I have hope in something, but the truth is faith and hope are two very different ideas, two very different concepts. Hope uh, is is a desire. It's what we're longing for. It's something that we really want to have happen. Um, but But the thing about hope is there's no confidence, there's no assurance that it's actually gonna happen. It's just a desire. So as I'm looking into the future, it's something I want. I hope this is going Uh, to happen. Uh, And so, for example, uh, many of you know that I'm an Atlanta Braves uh, baseball fan, and uh, I had hope uh, that my Atlanta Braves would would have gone deeper into the postseason. But I did not have faith that they were going to go deep into the postseason, right? Because uh, when you think about faith and hope and their difference, uh, hope is forward-looking. It's that desire. It's that aspiration. Whereas faith is something rooted in the past. It's anchored in the past. And as as one of my uh, bosses once taught me, uh, that past behavior uh, determines uh, future, uh, how is the best predictor of what's going to happen in the future with that behavior. And so if you want to know how that person's going to behave in the future, you look at their past, and that's the same idea with faith. We look to the past, and so that we can look forward into the future. Hope is just forward-looking. It's a desire, but faith is like, yep, I'm looking for that. I'm hoping for that, but I have this confidence because of what has happened in the past. And and uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this passage in uh, the book of Hebrews. It's actually a definition of what faith actually is. And we keep repeating it over and over and over. Uh, my hope is that after five sermons, we're all going to know exactly what is faith. And so this is what the writer of Hebrews 11 says faith is. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so there's this confidence and assurance. And so, again, I just want to give you the mathematical equation. Hope plus confidence equals faith. Or faith equals uh, confidence plus hope. And it's, it's this not only just this desire, but there's something really strong inside of us that believes that this is really going to happen. It's not just a flip of the coin. And some of you I know are thinking about the Bears and the Lions game today, right? Nobody in this room has faith that it's going to go the Bears way today, right? It's just, it's a flip of the coin. I mean, it could happen. But you look at past behavior and yeah, I mean, come on, right? 
The bears are so much fun to pick on. Thank you, Debbie. I appreciate that a lot. Endless sermon illustrations. And so we're talking about faith. And so uh, the, the verse 2 of Hebrews 11 is this. This is what the ancients were commended for, having this faith. And so each week, uh, for five weeks, we're looking at the ancients, a different life, a different person uh, who lived long, long ago. Uh, and today, uh, we are going to look at the life of Joseph. Let us pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the faith that you give us, the confidence and the assurance that we can face the future because of what you have done in the past. And God, as we prepare to open your word this morning and reflect some more on what you're up to in the world and in our own lives, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On August 13th, 1961, 89 miles of razor wire was put up around the city of West Berlin. And soon this razor wire would be replaced by other structures and concrete barriers going 89 miles around the city of West Berlin. And I remember um, back in the mid-1980s, uh, I was a foreign exchange student in West Germany. And I remember very specifically the day that my host family took me over to Die Grenze, also known as the border, and I also remember the first time I went into West Berlin and saw Der Mauer, the wall. It's something you never forget if you ever visited uh, East and West Germany back in the day. And I remember being struck at, at, at how significant uh, this divider was between these two great superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States. And of course, West Berlin was ground zero during the Cold War for the tension that existed between East and West. Our arch enemy, right? The Soviet Union, the Russians. And if, if you grew up or spent any time uh, back uh, during the Cold War, you know how tense it was in our nation, how tense it was uh, certainly around the world. And that was back in the, in the 1980s, and I remember 1987 even, I remember the, when, uh, 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 what's his name, President Reagan, thank you, um, stood in Berlin and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I scoffed, and I thought to myself, that will never happen in our lifetime, impossible. And if you were following the news media, the news media scoffed and they said, impossible, it will never happen in our lifetime. And if you talk to professors and professionals, historians, political scientists, they all scoffed and said, it will never happen, not in our lifetime. And I returned back to Germany a couple years later. It was 1989. I went there in January and I this time I was a college student. I was much wiser, much smarter, and I actually spoke a little bit of German this time. And after 10 months of study, um, I got this wild hair idea to uh, travel through uh, Eastern Europe, through uh, some of the Soviet bloc countries. And so uh, I traveled through uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, uh, and Yugoslavia. And um, I remember it was November 9, 
1989, uh, I was in the port city of Dubrovnik, which is in uh, Yugoslavia uh, then, and uh, which is a, a medieval town overlooking the Adriatic Sea. And I'm in an outdoor cafe, I remember it as clear as yesterday. And there I am looking over the Adriatic City in this medieval town, beautiful sunshiny day, and I overheard somebody talking about the Berlin Wall. And my immediate reaction was no way. Impossible. Now this was the days before 24-7 news channels and all that, and so it actually took me a few days before I could get my hands on a newspaper. And I read that in this English newspaper that in fact the Berlin Wall had fallen. And I gotta tell you, even though I read it in the newspaper, I still didn't believe it. Because nobody thought it could ever happen, that it was absolutely impossible for the Berlin Wall to fall down. And it didn't fall down, it was torn down, right? And so I was still in disbelief that I just decided I need to see it for myself. And so three weeks later, I traveled over uh, to Berlin, and sure enough, there was, uh, there was a party going on in West Berlin, and it was really something. And, I, and, and so I did what everybody else did, is I went out and bought a sledgehammer, um, and I just whacked off a chunk of that wall for myself, because I knew that we were standing in a moment of history. And so today, as I think about that hunk of cement, poured in the 1960s, it's a great reminder for me that what seems impossible today might just be possible tomorrow. That through God's grace, we do impossible things in our life and in this world. And that's what I think it means to have faith, that even when things look impossible, it could never happen we still trust, we still believe in times past. And of course, Scripture is filled with all sorts of people. God came to God's people and said, I'm going to make you a promise. And over and over and over, as God made promises to God's people, their immediate reaction was, that's impossible, that cannot happen, no way. And early in Genesis, we read uh, the story where God comes to Abraham and he makes him an impossible promise. He makes him three promises. He comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I got three things for you. Number one, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham and Sarah didn't have children. And they were getting up there in age. He said, promise number two, your future generations are going to be blessed and they are going to be a blessing to the nations. And promise number three, I'm going to give you some of the best real estate in the Middle East. And scripture says, by faith, Abraham went. When the situation seemed completely impossible, Abraham just started walking toward the promised land. Well, and you know, along the way, God gives us these little glimpses of hope, these little glimpses that he's doing something. And along the way, God gave Abraham and Sarah a little glimpse that he was fulfilling his promise. And so one of the first things God did years later was he gave them a child, Isaac. 
And Isaac was truly a miracle. Abraham and Sarah were about 100 years old at this point in time. And, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, right, fairy tale, right? Impossible. But God gave them this miracle, Isaac. And Isaac, uh, as he grew up, somehow survived childhood. He was getting to be an older man. And the story goes in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, that Abraham's getting old and he's starting to die. And he gathers Isaac, Sarah. And he reminds them that the promises that God had promised still had not been fulfilled. And that's how Abraham dies. I mean, oftentimes we think, oh, Abraham was this, this great hero of the faith. He's got a great story, right? But Abraham died, and the promises of God had not fully been uh, achieved, fulfilled. But, there's the, but, he's, but he's got this remnant, Isaac. And Isaac, when he gets to be an older man, he marries a woman by the name of Rebecca, and they face their own challenges, they face the challenge of infertility. And if you've ever talked to anybody who's faced the challenge of infertility, I've sat with a number of couples, it's painful. Because couples look at me and say, why can't we have a child? And I look back at them and I, I say what the honest answer is. I don't know. I don't understand this. And I believe somehow God is in the midst of your hurt and your pain and your struggle of infertility. Well, God... Uh, showed up again and gave him another little glimpse of hope, another little glimpse of fulfilling his promise that came back from Abraham to forming this great nation. And uh, Rebecca got pregnant. She had, she, she, she had this, this bundle of joy, and it was this, this moment of praise God, right? But these children, Jacob and Esau, as they grew up, they fought like cats and dogs, have you ever noticed that in one moment, that thing that you're praying for, when it finally happens, you thank God and say, thank you, Lord. And in just the moment that you say, thank you, Lord, it's that very heartache and all the struggle, right? It's, it's, it's the prayer cycle throughout scripture. It's your prayer cycle. Careful what you pray for, because God might just show up and give it to you. And you're going to have a moment of praise God. And about five minutes later, you're going to be on your knees going, oh, Lord, now what do I do? And it's going to happen over and over and over in your life. And you've experienced this. And if you think about your own prayer cycle, well, well that, was, that was Jacob and Esau. And they fought like cats and dogs. And then pretty soon, Isaac is on his deathbed. And he passes on the blessing to Jacob, who uh, is now named Israel. And there's Isaac and the promises that God made to Abraham of this huge nation of blessed to be a blessing and prime real estate. They still hadn't happened. And then Isaac dies. So then Jacob, he's not happy with just one wife. He's got multiple wives. And if you ever want to see lots of dysfunction in Scripture, read about the story of Jacob, uh, of Israel, his multiple wives, his multiple concubines, not recommended, right? So if you ever need uh, a good reason or a good uh, story on why we should not allow polygamy, just read this story. It's awful, it's horrible, but, 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 but in the end, what happens is Jacob has 12 sons. He has 12 boys along the way, and so now God's starting to make this nation grow a little bit bigger, right? 
And there's more and more people, and they can start to see bigger glimpses of hope that God might actually be fulfilling his promises back to his grandfather, Abraham. But here's a little bit of parenting advice for those of you who are parents. If you have 12 children, 12 boys, do not give the youngest one a special coat. Because that's what he did, right? That's what Israel did. That's what Jacob did, is he gave Joseph that special technicolor dream coat. And his brothers hated him for it. Now, we parents, we know we're not supposed to have a favorite children, right? But Jacob had a favorite son, and his name was Joseph. And his brothers hated him for it. It caused all sorts of uh, problems uh, in Jacob's life and in, in all of their lives. And so um, as, as Jacob is uh, going along and, and, and Joseph's kind of figuring things out and his brothers are hating him more and more, the story gets even worse because um, when he's 17 years old, Joseph has a dream. And he goes to his brothers, his 11 brothers, and says, guys, I had a dream. Here was my dream. We were out threshing uh, uh, the, uh, or harvesting. It was harvest time, and we're putting together these stalks of grain. And we're bundling them all up. And, and, and just in, in the middle of my dream, all of a sudden, there was my stalk, my, my cluster of grain. And, and it was standing tall. And around me were 11 other uh, piles of uh, grain stalks, and they were all bowing down to me, which can only mean one thing, right? I'm going to rise up, and you guys are all going to bow down to me. Well, how do you think that went over with Joseph and his brothers, who already hated him, right? They hated him even more. And so then they make this plot. Well, let's just kill him. Let's get rid of him. He's dad's favorite. He says, you know, he's, he's got kind of, uh, he's kind of narcissistic. He kind of thinks he's, it's, life is all about him, that we're going to bow down to him. So let's get rid of him. And so they decide one day to let's just throw him in a well. Let's just get rid of him and throw him in a well. And we'll, when we get back home, we'll say, oh, we don't know where he went, dad. Gone. I don't know. Joseph, what? So they throw him in a well. And along comes a caravan of, of traders, and they're on their way to Egypt. And as they're going down to Egypt, one of the brothers says, I've got an idea. Rather than having Joseph die in that well, let's make some money. Let's sell him. He can become a slave. So we'll get rid of our brother, and we'll actually profit from this. And so they take that technicolor dream coat. They rub a little bit of blood on it from some wild animal. They take it back to their dad, Jacob, also known as Israel. And they're like, Dad, look, the wolves must have gotten your favorite son. We're so sorry. We don't know what happened to him. Now, of course, Jacob, uh, not Jacob, uh, Joseph, uh, he, was not, uh, he wasn't dead. He was just uh, carted off to Egypt. When he got down to Egypt, uh, he was sold as a slave, right? And you guys probably know this story, those of you who grew up in church. He, he was sold as a slave uh, in Potiphar's house. Now, Potiphar was among the elite of Egypt. He was a very successful businessman, right? People to go, places to see. And, and Potiphar was always doing things uh, in the community. And, and he was frankly rarely home because he was, just, he was a businessman, now, the problem was uh, Potiphar had a wife, Mrs. Potiphar, and her husband spent long days at the office, right? And he was gone all the time. And she was like one of the desperate housewives of Egypt, right? Because there she was at home, all this money. 
And the strapping young man shows up at her doorstep as her slave, smart, young, single, strong. You know where this is going, right? And so Mrs. Potiphar advances on Joseph. And Joseph is a righteous man. He says, I'm not doing that. She says, come on, nobody's going to know. And Joseph said, God will know. And so he resists all the temptation that Mrs. Potiphar puts on him. Well, she didn't like that, right? She didn't like that one bit. So she yells and screams, hey, this guy's trying to assault me. And they come and they arrest Joseph and he gets thrown in jail. And there Joseph sits for years and years and years, unjustly accused and unjustly sitting in jail. I want to pause right there in the story. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, Joseph is waiting and wondering, God, you promised my great-grandfather Abraham that you were going to make a great nation out of us. And here I sit in jail. I wait and wait and wait. And I don't know if I'm ever going to get out. And I know God has offered many of us, all of us, promises. And some of us feel like we're in that pit, in that jail. And I think we can even relate to Joseph in our lives. Because God promises you meaningful relationships in your life. God promises you relationships that are going to bring you joy and partnership, even happiness. And some of you are thinking to yourself, you know what? My kids are driving me crazy. My parents are driving me crazy. My spouse is driving me crazy. You're not feeling that the relationships that God has promised you are bringing you so much joy and happiness. Or maybe how about this? Some of you, uh, God has offered and promised you to be abundant in your finances, that God's going to give you enough financially. That's the promise God offers to you. And you're sitting here thinking, you know what? I'm not feeling so abundant in my finances. In fact, I thought at this point in time in my life, I'd have a little bit of, of a nest egg saved up. I'm facing retirement and the bank account's not looking good. And some of you are facing some real financial stress. You're not feeling it. You're feeling much more like Joseph in the pit going, God, where are you? You have promised to show up in my finances and I'm just not feeling it. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, and remembering the promises that God has for you to experience meaning and purpose in your life, right? That God is going to bless you and watch over you to give you meaningful uh, employment and a job and a career. And some of you are in the pit, in the prison that Joseph is in, thinking to yourself, I got to go to work tomorrow. I don't want to go to work tomorrow, and I don't want to go Tuesday, and I don't want to go Wednesday, and the next day, and the next day. And I thought I was going to kind of go like this, up and to the right in my career, and it's been more like this, and it feels like I'm going down, I'm crashing and burning. And I know some of you struggle with finding meaning and purpose in your work because it's drudgery. And you're just working for a paycheck. I know, I understand 
the struggle of living in that pit of just going, ah, oh, this doesn't feel meaning, meaning like there's any meaning in the work that I do day in and day out. Or how about the promise that God has for you that he wants you to live a full and abundant life? That he's going to heal you in whatever struggle, whatever challenge, whatever hurt, whatever pain you've got. And you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I'm sick. My loved one is sick. And they're not getting any better. They're getting worse. You're in that, that pit. You're in that prison of just wondering, when is this ever going to end? Is that person, am I ever going to be healed? And it's day after day, week after week, month after month, and you just, you're not experiencing healing. You're like, Lord, are you ever going to get me out of this pit? And I talked to some of you who are caregivers, who are caring for other people who are sick. We have a lot of people in this congregation who are caring for people who are ill. And what you share with me, so many of you share with me, is I'm tired I am so exhausted caring for other people. And then you feel guilty because you feel like you're tired uh, because you're not supposed to, uh, you know, you're supposed to take care of that person. And, and it's this cycle of just you're worn out. You're in that pit with Joseph day after day after day. And you're asking yourself, Lord, when are you ever getting me out of this pit? Are you ever going to get me out of this pit? Or is this my life forever? And I mean, that's Joseph. I think at some level, we can all identify to being in that pit and wondering, Lord, are you ever going to show up? So after many years, Joseph gets released from prison, and it's a miracle. God rescues Joseph out of uh, a prison, and it's this praise God moment. And not only does he, he pull him out of jail, but God gives him another miracle. He uh, gives him the ability uh, to interpret dreams. And because he's able to interpret dreams, the, you know, the, the, the grand poobah of Egypt says, you know what, you're going to be my Mike Pence. You're going to be the guy, the vice president, who stands right next to me with whatever is going on in the world. And that's Joseph. He goes from the depths of despair to the number two. He is now the VP of Egypt. And he's pretty good at it. He's actually really good at it. I mean, he's, I don't know if he's taking skills while he was in jail or what the deal is, but he all of a sudden, God gives him this vision that there's going to be a famine in the land. And so he says to the Pharaoh, here's what we need to do. We need to prepare for this big famine that's coming. And so they stockpile all sorts of grain and pretty soon there is a famine in the land. Before you know it, there are people from all over Africa, from the Middle East, from Europe. They're all flooding into Egypt because they've got a bumper crop of, of crops. And, and so they're, they're selling them and they can even spike the price because everybody is so desperate. And this is all because of Joseph and his leadership and his management skills. I mean, he is just going up and up and up from the, the, the pit of despair. Joseph is now on top of the world and everything is good. And guess what? His family, his 11 brothers, guess what? They're out of grain. They're out of food. So they have to travel down to Egypt. They stand before Joseph and they bow down. They bow down to Joseph. The prophecy came true. The dream came true. 
And Joseph is so just overwhelmed. He's just, you know, it, it happened, right? And he breaks down and he cries and he forgives his brothers. And he invites his mom and dad, hey, come live in the palace with me. Come down to Egypt. And in many ways, the story of Joseph is, is, and they all lived happily ever after. It's amazing. It's truly a remarkable story. But the only problem is that the promises of God that went way back to Abraham, lots of people blessed to be a blessing and this prime real estate, they still haven't happened. So in the midst of all the goodness going on in Joseph's life, the great promises have still not been fulfilled yet. So how, and, the, and then there's Joseph. He's sitting on his deathbed. He calls in his family. What do you think Joseph thought? I mean, he's just surrounded by all sorts of opulence and, and everything good. But yet the promises of God still had not been fulfilled. Hebrews 11, verse 22. This is Joseph's response at the end of his life. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and he gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. So there he is on his deathbed. He says, guys, God has not still not fully fulfilled his promises that he made to our ancestor Abraham. And he speaks forward into the future, into the exodus, which is going to happen many years down the road. He's still looking forward. He still has hope. He still has this confidence, this assurance that God is going to show up and God's still going to do something into the future. And then he says, now here's what I want you to do with my bones. Kind of morbid, right? You think about your own bones and might maybe where you're going to put your bones someday. He's doing pre-funeral pre, uh, planning right here, right? He says, here's what I want you to do. Take my bones and go to that prime real estate. Bury my bones there. And so after he dies, that's what they do with Joseph's bones. They take his bones to Israel, to that promised land, and they put them there because they're looking into the future and getting ready. See, the story just keeps going. God's promises still have not been fulfilled. But everybody, they, they continue to look back and see God's faithfulness, and they get these little glimmers of hope, these little glimpses of promise, and they keep stepping into the future by faith, and they have this extraordinary confidence that God is taking them somewhere, that God is going to show up and do something amazing uh, in their lives as a nation, and God's going to fulfill those three things that he promised uh, to Abraham back in the day. So what does that have to do with us? Well, back in January, I stood before you and I shared uh, the new mission and vision of Faith Lutheran Church, and, uh, which is uh, growing disciples, the grow disciples, the grow disciples, and planting churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches, right? And over the past several months, uh, it's been really fun uh, walking alongside you all, living into the new mission and vision. 
And many of you have shared with me that you're really growing in your discipleship, in your walk with Jesus. Some of you have shared with me that you've got a renewed sense of prayer uh, going on in your life. You're having more regular conversations with God. Some of you have shared with me, um, but for the first time in your life, you're reading scripture on your own. Some of you have shared with me about the ways that you're serving in community. Some of you have shared with me about uh, ways that you're giving generously. Some of you have shared with me uh, about the ways that you are connecting with other Jesus followers in small groups. And some of you have said, I've never done this before. I've been a part of a church for years, for decades. But for the first time in my life, I am connecting with other Jesus followers in a small group. And I am loving it. In fact, last week... I was having coffee with one of our faith people and and he looked at me and he said, you know, if you had invited me to lead a small group five years ago, I would have laughed in your face. He said, but you know, I've grown so much uh, over the past uh, few years here at Faith that when you asked me to lead a small group, I was just like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And then he said, you know, these past six weeks have been amazing. I have grown so much. I love being a part of a small group. I love it even more, leading, co-leading a small group. I have grown so much. Thank you for inviting me to be a leader of a small group. And, and these are the kind of stories you guys just share with me over and over and over. And, and, and sometimes um, your friends are like, oh, my, my friend has grown so much in their faith. My kids, I just, I see them just growing and growing and growing. And so you guys, I I see you just really living into our mission of growing disciples. And you guys are doing that. And, And I just, I praise God for that. And I celebrate all the ways in which you are growing in your faith in Jesus Christ. And then I also stood before you 10 months ago and talked a little bit about this vision of planting churches that plant churches that plant churches, right? And, and some of you look cross eyed at me, right? You're like, what in the world does that even mean? And I stood before you, and and throughout the past 10 months, I've looked you in the eye and said, I don't know. I don't know. We've we've got this vision to plant 1,000 churches. Maybe this is new for some of you. We've got a vision to plant 1,000 churches over the next 40 years. You want to laugh, right? You want to scoff, you want to chuckle a little bit, right? Because when I first read that and saw it on paper, that was my reaction. No way, no how, how in the world is God ever going to do this? And so what we've been doing over the past several months, and and I know many of you have too, is just been praying. God, how how are you going to do this? How are you going to plant a thousand churches over the next 40 years by using our congregation? How are you going to do that? Many years ago, I got some really good advice, and I don't even know who I got it from, but you can share this with anybody else. Uh, but this is the advice I got. Look and see what God is doing, and then jump on board. You don't have to create it. Just pay attention to how the Holy Spirit is moving in the world, and then come alongside, roll up your sleeves, and jump in. And so over the past several months, we've just been praying, God, where's your Holy Spirit moving? What are you up to? And how can we partner with what your Holy Spirit is already doing? Well, several months ago, um, we received a phone call from a group of about 35 disciples, followers of Jesus in Atlanta, Georgia. And they, they called us and said, hey, we love Jesus. We just don't have a church. 
I said, awesome. Well, there's lots of churches in Atlanta, Georgia, right? It's the Bible Belt. There's lots of churches. And they said, you know, we have looked around and we just do not see a church that, that really works for us, that really fits for us. They said, well, how did you do it at there at Faith Lutheran? Because they knew that we had you know, a new church plant. And I said, you know what? We, we just started praying and we just started gathering together and worshiping and, and, and serving Jesus in the community. And, and, and God just showed up. And they said, well, do you think we could do that? I said, I don't know why not. I don't know why not. And I got to tell you, over the past few months, our role as a congregation has just been to encourage a group of people a thousand miles away to just say, you can do it. We did it. Not on our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. We think you can do this. And just speaking that confidence that you guys can do this. So they recently said, okay, we're going to do it. So on December 1st, in three weeks, St. Martin Lutheran Church is going to hold their first worship service in Brookhaven, Georgia. Isn't that cool? I mean, you can say Amen! Folks, this church would not exist if it were not for you all and your faith believing in something that could actually happen. And this is what it means to walk by faith, to live by faith, is to, to just trust, to believe that God is up to something, and then to just step out and act in obedience uh, to who God has called us. And then we just share this with other people. So I was talking to Greg about this, and he's like, hey, one down, 999 to go. <laughs> right? I mean, we only, we only have 999 more churches to plant, right? Did you know that 94% of all churches in the United States never plant a church? Let that sink in. 94% of all churches in the United States never plant a single church. They form together, they come together, and they live their cycle, and then they die together. 94% of churches in America, only 6% of churches in America actually plant another church. We have been together for two and a half years, and we are in the process in three weeks of planting our first church. That good news or what? Guys, that's, that's growth. That is spiritual growth. That is living into our mission and vision. And I got to tell you, we've got three other church plants that we are praying about right now. Three. God has given us a vision to make disciples, to grow disciples. And we just got to step up and act into it. Even if we don't see it right now, even if it looks impossible, even if we're like, I don't know, 999 more churches in 40 years. I'm not going to be here in 40 years, right? But Ellie will, right? See, this is why we've got this church, Faith Lutheran, right? It's not for us. It's for Ellie and her kids, and their kids, and their kids. So I don't know what's going on in your life today. I don't know what pit, what prison you're in. But I want to remind you, Joseph lived by faith. And we can too. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. 
Thank you, God, that you are so much bigger in the things that we cannot see that you show up. So God, give us faith. Give us that confident assurance that you're doing something in us and through us. God, may we be a church that just falls head over heels in walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ as we grow disciples who grow disciples and grow disciples. And God, help us to not get overwhelmed or wring our hands about the task that you've invited us to participate with you in, to plant churches, to plant churches, to plant churches. Lord, we are not worthy. We are not capable. But you are good and you are faithful. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.